0: Hi, and welcome to Incluse. This. I'm your host, Sarah Kerwin, and this is a movement for disability equity. Today, we're talking with Alana Murray, and we're talking about uplifting and amplifying the voices of disabled women. Alana Murray is a disability advocate and postgraduate researcher living in Ireland. Her advocacy mainly focuses on key social issues, such as social inclusion of disabled people, reproductive rights, and promoting greater inclusion in LGBTQ spaces for disabled people. She holds a bachelor's degree in film and television production, and she is currently writing a master's thesis on disability and culture in film. She is the co-founder of Disabled Women of Ireland, and in 2019 completed a placement in Washington, D.C. as part of the Washington-Ireland program, a program aimed at engaging young leaders across the island of Ireland. She started her activism journey in her second year of college while researching her award-winning documentary, Roll Camera, which is a documentary that explores the representation of disabled people in Irish film. She has campaigned extensively for equal accessibility to transport, greater funding for students, the need for inclusive education, and reproductive health care for disabled people. She also delivered a TEDx talk on disability and social inclusion, and she has delivered numerous workshops on disability and sexuality, as well as the need for greater accessibility for disabled people in LGBTQ spaces. Welcome to inclusive This, Alana. I'm really, really excited to have you, and I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I love your accent, too, so if I just stop and listen to that, everyone will know why. I think the first time we talked, I said that, too. Oh, it's so soothing. One of the reasons I've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you is because the areas that you work in are areas that I really want to and need to learn more about. So we have limited time, and I just want to dive in because there is a lot to cover. One of the areas of work that you focus on is the connection between feminism and disability. And I want to read a quote from BuzzFeed contributing writer Lucy Webster in her article titled The Politics of Being Me. I have a university seminar on gendered security to thank for one of the biggest epiphanies I've had about myself. Or rather, about the politics of being me. In the midst of a heated debate about how gender is used to control people's movements, suddenly it hit me. So much of modern feminism relies on the ideal of female bodies that work as expected. For me, and lots of other disabled people, that's a model we simply don't fit. I'm a lifelong feminist and disability activist. Yet it took until that very moment for me to see that I am not simply a woman and disabled. I am a disabled woman. That well-known feminist rallying call, the personal is political, suddenly took on new meaning. I realized that things that had always seemed to me mere facts of life, like inaccessible shops or restaurants that didn't provide a disabled toilet, are obviously exclusionary. And that every time someone is patronizing to me, say, or assumes I am unable to read, They are not just making unfounded assumptions about the clinical nature of my disability. They are also labeling me as different, as abnormal. Nothing could be possibly more political than applying these labels, not just to me, but to a whole group of people who are consistently devalued and dehumanized. And feminism showed me how I should respond to this, by asserting my humanity and being proud of my differences. Alana, can you explain the connection between feminism and disability for us and talk about your own experiences with both of them and what this writer is referring to?
1: I'll do my best. So basically, I suppose from my perspective, I've always kind of connected the two because, you know, I can't be disabled and a woman separately like I am a disabled woman, and everything you know comes back to my disability and my womanhood really like um the idea that you know we'll grow up and get married and have babies. But as you know a disabled woman, I'm told you know that I'm not supposed to do any of those things, you know, like I'll never find someone that you know would take me on, and if they do, you know they're they're a saint, and heaven forbid you know, I should have kids. You know, because disabled people are seen as a burden, and women are seen as the they take on the burdens of their husbands, and it's their job to be the be the person that's there, you know, that does all the you know the cooking, the cleaning, and you know, is really carries the house um at least in Ireland, anyway, we're still a very kind of patriarchal country. so I think for me, you know, it was really important as a young woman to really challenge those ideas and really I got into kind of disabled feminist activism um during Ireland's um fight to repeal our abortion laws so basically abortion was illegal because the Catholic Church still very much has or had at least control over most of Ireland and most of its like education and healthcare, were very religiously based.
0: That is so interesting and really leads into my next question for you, which is the work that you do around reproductive rights. This is such a broad term. So I've done a lot of research around that and on what that means as an issue for disabled women. I just want to read this abstract from an article that, or excuse me, it was a study that's titled Disabled Women and Reproductive Rights, and it was conducted by Virginia Calianes and Phyllis Rubenfeld. The abstract states, both the women's and disability rights movements have paid scant attention to the concerns of disabled women, especially involving sexuality, reproductive freedom, and mothering. Although their concerns may seem opposite of the women's movement's primary agenda, they are based on the same position. Women must not be defined solely by biological characteristics and have the right to make decisions about their bodies and lives. Disabled feminists often support reproductive rights, but also have different perspectives on abortion and reproductive technologies than non-disabled feminists. The literature indicates that the reproductive rights of disabled women are constrained by the assumption that disabled women are asexual, which you just mentioned, the lack of reproductive healthcare, contraception and sexuality information, and social resistance to reproduction and mothering among disabled women. Disabled women are at risk for a range of undesirable outcomes, including coercive sterilization, abortion or loss of child custody. What does this mean for the day-to-day life of a disabled woman? Can you explain that in plain language so we can really understand what we're talking about and why it's important to educate, that we educate on this area of activism?
1: So when I first started working um, um, in the kind of the this- space where we were fighting against nobody was allowed abortions you know people were getting on a plane um and flying to the UK to have their abortions and there was 12 people a day flying to the UK to get an abortion um you know access and healthcare in a different country and we noticed that nobody was talking about disabled women like they were and disabled people in general i don't like to use the word Women, in this kind of case, because not everyone that needs an abortion is a woman, so nobody was really talking about disabled people in that space, and we really wanted to kind of get a handle on that. Our main focus was education, you know, because we were saying, "Look, disabled people, disabled women, these are the issues they're worried about their child being taken away from them um Ireland had a history of putting disabled people in institutions and in those institutions they would be sterilized. It's a very kind of common thing that people would have experienced. But now kind of we're able to bond together and kind of say, this is the this is the idea. And we gathered our information, you know, from from Europe and um and the different studies that were done. And, you know, as feminists, we kind of said, This is an issue that you need to take seriously because abortion rights are so important, but equal and equity um, in access to information to, you know, because some people are living with parents that, you know, wouldn't let them have a child so they'd get them an abortion. Um, and there's so many things to consider when you take disability and reproductive healthcare. And, you know, so many people would kind of would push for the sterilization and would withhold the information on abortions because they didn't want disabled people to know about it. Um, but at the end of the day, the maternal um, mortality rate. I think it was 60 percent or something. Um when you kind of look at it through a disability lens so at the end of the day you know when you when you don't take disability into the equation like people will die you know it is incredibly important that people have all the have all the information when it comes to you know disability and reproductive health care um I think it's a really important issue
0: And it was kind of the catalyst, or it was the catalyst, that moved you and another group of young women to create Disabled Women of Ireland.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was born during that movement of repealing the Eighth Amendment. And we kind of said, look, we're a group of young ones that, you know, care about disability rights issues through a feminist lens. And, you know, we didn't have that in Ireland at all. Most of the voices that we kind of heard, it was men. I think when Disabled Women Ireland kind of came around, we had a few people that were like, you know, oh, why women specifically? And we were conscious that we're, we're for everyone. Um, Even though we are Disabled Women Ireland, we are inclusive of trans and non-binary people. But we wanted somewhere where we could kind of look at our specific issues and kind of look at reproductive healthcare, look um LGBT issues, even stuff like conservationership. Like I'm not part of Disabled Women Ireland anymore. But when I was there it was about feminism and it was about, you know, it was a family. We wanted to create a community and a family where we build each other up and we elevated each other they're running a really great campaign now at the moment called disability isn't a dirty word and it's kind of pushing back against the the notion that there's a whole lot of ways to say disability you know people say differently abled special needs you know all those different things when really they can just say disabled but they're afraid to say disabled because of the negative connotations associated with the with the word so really what they're doing at the moment, I think, is incredible. And I think, you know, they should be, be applauded for all the really hard work that they're doing.
0: Yeah, I, I love that campaign. Disability isn't a dirty word. I, I'm curious to know, given how Catholic Ireland is and how much I love Ireland, by the way. I, um, my last name is Kerwin. My family is historically from Galway. So I visited about, gosh, must have been seven years ago, and I just fell in love. And they had Kerwin Lane, and so that was fun. But anyway, um, as, as it stands in Ireland, with the Catholic Church having so much control and, and reach into the political landscape of the country, what was the reaction, the country's reaction to this group of women, young women coming forward with disabled women of Ireland and bringing these issues to the forefront?
1: Disabled women
0: Ireland, I think came
1: after the referendum. So people were still very, they were still very raw. You know, there was a lot of, in a way there was a lot of trauma around activism and people were so exhausted after the repeal referendum. And, you know, we'd went through so much, like, you know, it was a lot of abuse kind of online, you know, saying that we never would have been born if it weren't for the eighth amendment and, you know, if abortion had been legal we would have been aborted and all of these things you know we had to go through a lot but people have been overwhelmingly nice when it comes to Disabled Women Ireland and they were overwhelmingly supportive but we do kind of get the odd one where it's like you know oh I don't see myself as disabled you know I'm a differently abled and you shouldn't you shouldn't use those words so there's still a lot of stigma around disability and disabled women's issues you know like I think a lot of people are kind of like oh why why is it just disabled women and you know we had disabled men kind of coming and saying oh you know what about men and I think that that's a very common thing in all feminist circles they'll kind of they'll want to talk about an issue and then all of a sudden men will come along and think their opinion is valid when it isn't um nobody asked but I think It was really important that we we made a name for ourselves and we kind of we staked our claim that we weren't going away after abortion rights. There were so many different issues that were disabled issues and disabled women's issues. I think it was was important, you know, that traditionally able-bodied feminists, we kind of said, look, we're here as well. And you need our help. Not that we need your help. You need ours.
0: Online, I see a lot of articles about just the divide, that the feminist movement hasn't included women with disabilities. Can you explain that a little bit more? How has that worked historically, that disabled women have not been included in women's rights movements?
1: Like, I think there's there's naturally this, you know, idea with feminism that, you know, because one person, you know, is fighting for one issue, nobody else is allowed in. And there's this kind of misconception and I think the articles don't really help that, you know, one group is against another group. Like disabled women can't um support like trans women, you know, like we're all fighting for this kind of piece of the feminist pie, really. But um in terms of like feminism and disability and kind of what I noticed is that it was little things like having a venue for traditionally kind of able-bodied feminist organizations were having events in inaccessible areas, inaccessible buildings, or they wouldn't have an interpreter. And some would be great and they'd be like, look, we couldn't get one, you know, we couldn't get an interpreter in time, or this is the only space we had, which was fine until it became a regular thing. And it was clear that it, there was hostility nearly you know, we had some we had some issues or I had some issues, I should say, um, with people that were kind of they were like, oh, you know, we have enough to be doing without worrying about access. But I think it ha it has improved and, you know, since um they became aware of the issues and, you know, they kind of realized that we weren't gonna stop irritating them and annoying them until they became inclusive that it kind of it got better because at the end of the day you can get anywhere by just being stubborn. And I think you can really you can really make a difference by just refusing to I suppose bow to able bodied people. You know, my life got a whole lot easier once I stopped trying to make people comfortable because I just had no interest in that anymore. You know, it's my fight too. And I think that once people kind of realized that I wasn't going anywhere, they made the the accessibility needs because it wasn't worth the headache of listening to me if they didn't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I Yeah, I totally understand that. And it's really interesting that you would talk about the accessibility point, because again, I go back to my research because, you know, I just love research and data. And I was reading this article titled Inclusion of Disabled People in the LGBTQ Community is About More Than Accessibility. The writer, Yolanda Vargas, says accessibility at major queer events like pride is extremely important to disabled, LGBT, 2 people, and many of us are willing to provide guidance to make it happen. However... Disabled people can offer more to the queer community than just insight on how to create accessible spaces. Unfortunately, it often seems like the community at large doesn't want anything else from us and that we can only exist in queer spaces if we agree to provide free labor and focus only on addressing questions and concerns about disability from our non-disabled queer and genderqueer siblings. This connects to exactly what you were saying. And you're very active in promoting the greater inclusion in LGBTQ plus spaces for disabled people. So can you tie that back into the feminism and just share with us what your experience has been with this community as well?
1: So obviously, you know, I am a young disabled bisexual woman. So the LGBTQ community is my community, but particularly in in Ireland, there there aren't a lot of LGBTQ spaces. You know, people will call it, you know, new, that it's a new thing. But, you know, gay people have always existed. And by extension, disabled gay people have always existed. You just haven't seen us because we haven't been able to get in the door. You know, there are currently no fully accessible LGBT spaces in Dublin, where I'd kind of do most of my socialising the only um sober lgbtq space is upstairs it's upstairs so it was really important to me you know that as a young as a young gay woman that you know i have that community because the lgbtq plus you know group as a whole is a community and it is a family and i really I felt it was important that disabled people should have access to that and they should have access to that community. So it was really important that any kind of activism I did, it was really about making sure that young disabled people weren't excluded because being young and gay in a traditionally Catholic country, you know, you, you feel like you're by yourself and you feel like nobody can understand because you have the layer of being gay and then also the added layer of disability. So I think that for me was kind of the main reason that I I decided to to take up that fight. But um it hasn't been unreceptive to say like nothing has changed, but people have been willing to learn. So I think that's good.
0: Yeah, and you were just talking a little bit about your experience in Ireland. And I know that you participated in the Ireland-Washington program. So in 2019, you actually worked out here in Congress, right, in D.C.?
1: Yeah, so the Washington-Ireland program, I actually, I worked um, I worked for a firm, a public affairs company um, in D.C.,
0: What was, how how was your experience different from the experience that you had in Ireland as compared to the experience that you had in D.C. as a young, disabled, gay woman?
1: It was an absolute world apart. It was so different, everything. Like, it wasn't perfect, but, like, I could, you know, get the metro without having to, Book two days before, you know, and I didn't have to tell anyone, you know, when I'd get on the bus or when I get off the bus. Like I was just able to hop on the metro and go. And the paths and everything were so accessible and everything had a curb drop. And my workplace was really great. Like they let me work from home one day a week so I could rest. Even going out, like there were places I could go out and socialize with my friends. Whereas we would have had to, plan and really research the place before before we went in Ireland, we didn't have to do that in America because it was accessible. Like I marched in Pride um in DC and it was my first pride. And it was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall as well. Um uh, so, you know, all those things kinda of coming together. I never had to worry about the route or whether it was accessible because It just was like they just thought of that was never a question of whether it be accessible or not, because of course it would be like, why wouldn't it be? Because they were included, like disabled people were included in everything. So
0: it was miles different. (laughs) And has that changed your work that you, your activism work in Ireland, that experience? yeah big time
1: because I've kind of I've seen what's possible and I've seen what you can do if you you know if you have a government that will listen if you have legislation that works and you have a community that even even if there's problems that they will pull together and make sure that you're that you're there because you're a part of the community and they want you there um Whereas with Ireland, it can kind of be a case of it's easier to not have you there. And our legislation doesn't really work like we have. Um, We have this thing in Ireland where it's protected structures. So it looks at historical buildings. And it was made to kind of help secure the history and make sure that we didn't forget the history. But it also created a world of issues for accessibility. Like you can't um, renovate a a protected structure. So, you know, historical buildings and that kind of thing, you can't put a ramp in and you can't put a lift in and they're inaccessible. So disabled people have just have to deal with it. And even um, like some of our music venues are in historical buildings and protected structures and they're just off limits because it was like, well, we're protected, so therefore we don't need to do anything about it. Like, I I understand what it was there for initially. Like, I understand why why it was created in the first place, but it was created flawed. And, you know, it's very clear that disabled people weren't part of the process, because I think retrofitting something is more expensive in the long run. But, you know, you get your money back in spades by including people.
0: Well, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, everyone has the right to be able to access public spaces, you know. And I I think it will be interesting when people listen to this in the United States because I think that for a lot of us who are activists and advocates – advocates, excuse me, in this space feel like we haven't gone far enough here, right? We have the ADA, but it hasn't been fully funded. It hasn't been fully implemented. We haven't looked at it in years. It needs a refresh. It needs a rebrand. But we have to remember, too, that we are at a different point than, than where other countries are at. And so it's good for us to know how we can support and uplift each other's work, because if we're all together in this and we have a larger voice, we can make a larger impact and we can make a stronger movement worldwide, globally, as opposed to just in each country, if we can uplift each other's work, I believe. Exactly. Like at the end, like, look at us.
1: Like, this is a conversation between Ireland and the US. You know, just two people having a conversation. It's making a difference. You know, no matter how small, I think when people talk about change making, they, you know, they think too big. You know, they think that they have to make a massive impact to, you know, make a difference. But every single person, every single movement starts with one person. Like, all it takes is one person and doing tiny things. And then that person can talk to another person, and then they can talk to another person. And
0: if everyone kind of done tiny things, they turn into big things. Exactly. I literally think I just said that on another episode. I can't remember anymore, because sometimes they run together. But I was saying that Sometimes we stare so longingly at this like huge impact or this big change we want to make that we forget to focus on the smaller individual one-on-one personal connections that we make that then, like you said, go from one person to another person to another person, and that spreads. And I think that what has really been interesting for me throughout this process of this podcast is that I've been able to learn so much more about disability in other countries. Poland, they were, it was in the news that Poland banned all abortions. And I immediately went back to our conversation around reproductive rights. And my mind immediately went to um, the disabled population in Poland and how that was going to affect them. It starts to change our thinking. We start to understand and look at disability on a more global level as opposed to just within our own communities, which I think is very cool when we start to have that shift in mindset.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's really about international solidarity and, you know, it's kind of figuring out what I can do in Ireland to kind of help, you know, someone in Poland, you know, like people, feminism you know, would kind of look at it and be like, oh, I hadn't considered disabled people, you know, because they haven't had to consider disabled people. So the more we're kind of present in these conversations, the more people are kind of becoming aware, kind of realizing that, you know, everything is a disabled rights issue. Like whether it be housing, whether it be transport, whether it be reproductive health, like everything that people fight for, affects disabled people. So really disabled people should be involved in any and every conversation when it comes to change making because it will affect them, whether you think that it will
0: or or not. I love how you stated that. I didn't even really yes, I think about that, but not in those specific words. But yeah, everything affects disability. All of the policies.
1: Yeah, like everything is, is a disabled rights issue. Like people you know, when I'm talking about equal access to, to nightclubs and, you know, people say are like sexual health. People say, well, how is that a disabled rights issue? And I can link it back to every time I can link it back to disabled, to disability and disabled issues. And people are so surprised. But, you know, disabled people exist in society and, you know, they, they live, they work, they travel. They have sex, you know, they date, they dance, you know, it's all like disability is everywhere.
0: We're people who want access to things. Exactly.
1: And I think people forget that.
0: Yeah, they do. I think they do. Um, oh, I want to go back to one thing that you said earlier. Not everyone who needs an abortion is a woman. And I want you to explain to our listeners what you mean by that, because I, I think that's a really important point for us to make.
1: You know, when we're talking about reproductive healthcare,
0: there's always
1: a, an instinct in us to kind of say women, you know, it's, it's only disabled women can get pregnant. And that really jeopardizes trans people you know that can get pregnant or non-binary people that can get pregnant that don't identify as she her you know there could be someone who identifies as as he him they can still get pregnant um like they them they can get pregnant you know it's it's not a singular women's issue like it is a people's issue and it's a healthcare issue at large
0: I appreciate you explaining that because I think it's really important for all of us to understand that it is a people's issue. It is a human issue. As you were talking about uh, uplifting and supporting the work globally, internationally, how can we, like me and our listeners, how can we support and uplift the work you're doing? And then on a greater level, how can we uplift and support the work that disability advocates and activists are doing internationally to build that community, that international disability community?
1: Social media is really invaluable towards this, like um, Disabled Women Ireland and everything. They were, they were born on social media. All their kind of the, the work that they do is social media in terms of kind of uplifting people at large. I'd say make make space for marginalized people. So, you know, people think that um, disability, you know, it's very white when it comes to, you know, disability and activism, you know, people people have a habit to prioritize that the people that look like them. And I would say completely disregard that, you know, uplift disabled people of color, you know, uplift disabled trans people. And really just give give your platform to them if you can, because at the end of the day, I can talk about myself, but I can't begin to understand the barriers that exist for disabled people of color. You know, I'll never I'll never understand the, you know, the difference in experience and it's not my place to to speak over them on their on their experience. So I think really just diversifying, I think, is is the thing that you need to focus on, like disabled rights needs to diversify, because if we don't, then we're going to miss a perspective. And we're, you know, it could be a very valuable perspective. So I think that that's something that's very important.
0: Yeah, and I have to tell you, I you're you speak with such eloquence and strength in your voice with all of this work that you're doing. It just is like, this is a human rights issue and your messaging is so spot on with that. And I just really appreciate everything that you have had to say. What's the most important thing for our listeners to take away from today's conversation? It's that every, everything is a
1: disabled rights issue. You know, whether, whether you think it is, or it isn't, you know, like, um, like transport, sexuality, You know, reproductive health, housing, everything comes back to disabled people. And whether, you know, you're organizing an event or a workshop or a seminar or anything, that it's important to include disabled voices, but pay them as well. Disabled people shouldn't have to work for free, particularly when so many of them are living below the poverty line.
0: And many of them are in forced poverty. Exactly. So I
1: think the, the really important thing is to consult disabled people, but respect them enough to pay them for their time and their energy, because they are invaluable sources of
0: information. It's so interesting that you say that, because I remember when I first started this podcast, and one of the potential guests that I was reaching out to asked me if I had a sponsor. And I said, no, I'm just, I said, it's a labor of love. I was laughing, but she didn't think it was as funny. And she said, I'm so tired of hearing people with disabilities describe their projects as labors of love. There there comes a point where the projects that disabled people are working on need to be uplifted financially as well. To have that lived experience, also that professional background, that education does need to come with some payment, I do think. But in this space, a lot of people with disabilities are paid below minimum wage, which is legal here, I don't know about in Ireland, um, or not paid at all. Yeah, like, obviously, it's, it's very hard um, in the first place for disabled
1: people to get jobs. The disabled employment rate is 4% here. Yeah, and our government was like, oh, let's, you know, do a really good, you know, let's be really ambitious. And in the program for government that was formed, um, they wanted to aim for 6% employment. <laughs>
0: wow. Oh, that's a big jump.
1: Yeah, they are incredibly
0: ridiculous. I was just actually listening to it must have been a show on NPR the other day, and they were talking about how many women have left the workforce just in the last two months. And I think it was I, I'm not going to say the numbers, but really high numbers of how COVID-19 has impacted women. And then when you think about that from a disability perspective, how many disabled women have been impacted? You know, And even then you go further and you look at payments, you know, relief packages and our SSI, SSDI programs here aren't offering any additional support for people. You know, I mean, there's just more people are going into poverty at this point. And that means that more disabled people are going into forced poverty. And I think that we, that people forget to look at, they kind of look at the, the majority as, as that baseline and they don't look at the outliers per se, but what they don't realize is that the disability community is not an outlier. It's actually a huge, huge community. And if we go back to kind of what you said about people who identify or don't identify as a disability, that's also important when we look at who comprises the disability community. There's always this conversation around, you know,
1: disability or person with disability. Normally, I'm kind of like, it's, it's very much like pronouns. And it's very like you're grand and you're comfortable enough to kind of self-identify as whatever you want. But at the same time, don't don't tell me how I should be identifying like i I use disabled, um because it's the it's the label that kind of fits me. And, you know, I've had lots of arguments with people that are like, oh, you know, you should call yourself this. So I think when we start having those conversations and kind of, you know, really build the respect between really it's about respect, but holding each other accountable as well.
0: Yes. And it's about for me, I believe it's about conversations like these so that we can be open and have I'm going to go back to when you and I had the first discussion. And I think the title for this was amplifying voices of women with disabilities and after you and i had spoken you were very clear that we wanted it to be amplifying voices of disabled women to really have that identifier right of disabled a disabled woman and in episode one we talk about am i disabled enough and i'm i stay i say i'm still at that point of i'm a woman with a disability but last night, I was actually talking to my husband, and we were talking about, uh, you know, when you answer questions on a job application or you answer something about a disability, it depends on if you're are you going by the medical? are you going by identity model? Are you going by a social model? It depends all of those things come into play when you're answering a question like that. The point I was trying to make is that Having an open conversation where you and I can share that and talk about it and be like, oh, yeah, I see why it needs to be amplifying voices of disabled women. And that understanding comes through conversations. I'm very kind of relaxed
1: when it comes to, you know, are, am I disabled enough? Like, obviously, I use a wheelchair, so I'm very invisibly disabled. But, you know, I always say to people that if, if they feel, you know, in any way, it's like oh you know I have this issue but I don't know if I'm disabled if you're comfortable with using the label then go for it like I I've never kind of been a fan of policing whether you know someone is disabled or isn't disabled enough like if they say they are then you know they are and that's not up for discussion like nobody's identity I feel should be should be debated like if you feel like you're disabled then you know you're disabled
0: and that's it Yes. No one's identity should be up for discussion. How much better can you say it? That's what I'm talking about, Alana. Is there anything else you'd like to share with me and with our listeners before we wrap up today's conversation?
1: No, just thank you so much for for having me if anyone is kind of interested in me as a person um you can find me on twitter at Alana E. Murray you know that's kind of where I chat about the the kind of activism and you know stuff that I'm up to or anything like that um if you want to keep up with me um I'm not very entertaining at the moment um I'm I'm <laughs> I'm currently um in rehab uh, after a stroke but when I do eventually get back out there, um, I will be doing bits and pieces. So you can follow me there.
0: Well, you're almost back out there. I just wanna say thank you for being here today, for having the conversation with me. I know you're still in the hospital, so your dedication and commitment, and even when I had to reschedule, I just am grateful for your time and your insights. And like I said, just the strength of your voice and your activism and I appreciate all the work that you're doing in this space for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And once again to our listeners, thank you for spending your time with us and joining the Inclusive This conversation and movement. Incluse This is brought to you by iLevel Communications, LLC. iLevel is a California-based woman and disability-owned small business committed to having critical conversations at eye level, that are necessary to move disability to the forefront of the greater diversity conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing, please visit the website at www.ilevel.works. That's E Y E L E V E L dot W O R K S. You can also email me directly with any podcast episode ideas or questions and comments at sarah at iLevel.Works. Remember to put your disability lens on when you look at the world and tune in next week for another stimulating conversation on Incluse This, the podcast that's really a movement. Take care and be well.